So anyway, Philippians 2, 25 through 30. And so um, let's work through this for just, let's work through this for just a little while together. This was a different text for me because Paul just kind of gave this, uh, he kind of promoted Timothy, and now he's going to take a moment to promote Epaphroditus. And so you could teach this in one lump, and that's fine, because at the end of it, he says, honor such men. So there's this idea that, that Timothy is a man of proven character, of proven worth. And so now Epaphroditus will be shown to be the same kind of man. But they're distinctions or some of the ways that they're described are a bit different. So what you're getting basically, if you step back away from the text, is you can kind of see a litany of things that make a man or make a woman a man or a woman of honor. You know, Now, let's be honest, we're in a culture of honoring people, and I think this is fine. I think this is great. I think maybe we can be a bit gratuitous in the way that we honor. Sometimes we'll honor anybody for anything just so that no one feels left out. You know, and so we, we, we honor people and some, sometimes it has its place and sometimes it doesn't. One of the greatest blessings that I've ever experienced was being able to honor my aunt, Penny, who passed away a little over a year ago. It was very unexpected. Uh, she had special needs anyway all of her life. She was born uh, uh, premature, and there were a lot of complications from that. If you looked at her, it uh, was very reminiscent of Down syndrome, although I don't think that's actually what she had. But from premature birth, there were just all these complications. You know, she could hold a job, but she couldn't tie a shoe. She could stay in an apartment by herself, but she couldn't really cook, you know, uh, most things. So there was, there was some mental struggles that she had, obviously, and needed, uh, and needed a lot of care. Uh, and she had hip issues, you know, uh, and just some walking issues, but there was never anything that, that we knew to be internally wrong with her until one day she goes into the hospital for what we thought was something with the hip or, or whatever was going on because she just had had a hip surgery and she wasn't even 50 years old and and a uh, hip replacement, I believe. And so, but she died there in the operating room from other types of complications from something that was going on with her that they never even saw. So she passed away and that was sudden. She loved Jesus, loved Jesus like few people I've ever seen in my life. She was a hero of mine and still is to this day, and I have no doubt um, that, she is, that she is enjoying the presence of the Lord now. But it was a privilege and an honor for me to honor her, you know, and so I got to stand up there, and I had a section during the, during the, during the, the, the time of remembering my aunt to where I could just kind of boast in her and boast in the grace that God had given her and, and, and boast in her uniqueness and God made her this way, but it wasn't at all a limitation because so many people looked up to her as a spiritual giant because she had it here. She had it here. Now, could she, could she talk about the eternal generation of the son? No, but could she talk about, you know, uh, God's love for herself, the love she has for God, God's love for other people. I would watch Penny weep for the souls of men and women. You know, I don't see people in their right mind doing that very often at all, but I would see Penny on regular occasion break down in tears because she shared Christ with somebody and it just didn't land for them. It didn't connect with her. And I'm like, Lord, this is, this is teaching me such a valuable lesson, you know, that, that, you know, I need to be like this, you know. So, so I think Penny would be in the ranks of those who are men and women to be honored. So the reason, that's the reason I'm calling this men of honor because this is how Paul ends this little section of the letter by saying, hey, honor such men. So we understand we're not, we're not strangers to the idea of honoring people. And let me give some examples. We honor veterans, and rightly so, right? We have days that we honor veterans. You know, uh, it's not, it's, uh, it's, it's very often that I'm in 
a restaurant or somewhere and you see a vet and someone just comes up to them. It's not even Veterans Day or anything like that. And they'll come up to the vet and they'll shake their hand. Thank you for your service. I see that with uh, police officials and so on. And, and I think that's right. And I think that's good. And I think that's wonderful. But let's take it even further, right? So we honor sports figures, right? We honor sports figures. We honor musicians. We honor celebrities. We venerate these people because of their achievements or because of their athleticism or because of their skills. Baseball alone at Cooperstown, New York, 300,000 people pass through the Baseball Hall of Fame every year just to venerate these people, both living and deceased. There's a freshwater fishing Hall of Fame. Did you know that? There's a freshwater fishing. I'm assuming there's a saltwater uh, Hall of Fame. Saltwater fishing, there's a freshwater, there must be a saltwater, there's a RV, recreational vehicle, Hall of Fame, to where people are venerated. I don't know in what way, I don't know if it's because they built a recreational vehicle or because they drove one across country successfully. I I don't understand how those make it into the Hall of Fame or why there's a Hall of Fame for that. Not to mention there's an aviation Hall of Fame, there's a space Hall of Fame, and let me just say this, there's a space camp Hall of Fame. What, what does that look like? You know, I mean, you, what kind of, I'm not being judgmental, but what kind of people are inducted into the Space Camp Hall of Fame? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't understand. There's, a, there's an American Theater Hall of Fame. There's a National Radio Hall of Fame. There's a Horse Racing Hall of Fame. You know, I'm sure Secretariat's there. There's an Automotive Hall of Fame, an Agricultural Hall of Fame. And listen to this. This is the last one. Well, there's even a Canadian Cartoonist Hall of Fame a Canadian cartoonist Hall of Fame. Charlie, there might be a chemistry Hall of Fame, brother. And I am sure that doctorate-level chemists are the ones that are being inducted into that Hall of Fame. So, brother, hang on to hope, man. Your dreams are not yet shattered. We venerate celebrities by drawing a bedazzled star in a concrete, in a a slab of concrete somewhere in Hollywood, California. We call it the Walk of Fame, right? People like Donald Trump. Well, maybe not anymore. People like Donald Trump, his was destroyed. And and so many people, Tom Cruise, Sylvester Stallone, and, and others, we venerate these people for their achievements, for their celebrity status. We honor people. For better or for worse, we do this. It's a part of our culture. It's a part of who we are. But my question for you is this. Is there a difference in the honor worthiness of today's celebrities, athletes, and achievers versus the worthiness or the worth of Epaphroditus? Is there a different substance? Or is it just another veneration of some other person in a long list of veneration and a long list of, of, of exalting their celebrity or exalting their achievements or honoring them because of those things. Is there a difference? We have to draw a line of distinction somewhere and say, whenever we're instructed biblically to honor people, there has to be a certain criteria, a certain caliber and quality of that person that stands above the rest because the Bible is instructing us to honor certain people. I mean, we're honoring mothers and we're honoring fathers because the Bible talks about those things. We honor elders in the church, and I don't mean necessarily just mean those who are in leading authority, authoritative capacity, but those who are older. There's an honoring that we do there. There's, there's a biblical standard versus a cultural, worldly standard of venerating or honoring people. And this is kind of where the distinction is made here in this text. So I do want to kind of run through what it is to be a man or a woman of honor today. This is called men of honor. 
just because it's the title I gave it, but it's not reduced to men. Okay, so this is very much this is very much for women as well, because this talks about your your quality, the caliber of a person you are, and your worth as far as someone to be honored. Because these two men, these two men who who had their issues, these two men were honored. They were venerated. They're, Paul says to the church in Philippi, he says, look, receive him with joy, but honor such men. These are cut from a different cloth. These are different people. They may not be able to uh, uh, run faster than the fastest fullback on the football field. They may not be able to win, you know, all these home run derbies or someone was just awarded the longest drive in the world on the, you know, on the, on the golfing tee. They may not be able to do those things, but there are things that they can do. And it was enough so that they would be mentioned in the Bible and heralded as people that are worthy of veneration, worthy of honor. So, how do we make these distinctions and how do we get this? Well, I'm going to help you through this. So, buckle up. We're going to move through this. And I think it's pretty simple. And we'll get to the end together. We don't know much about Epaphroditus. The Bible only mentions him twice. And both times are in the book of uh, Philippians. That's it. We know a little bit more about Timothy, right? Timothy uh, was written two letters. He was also venerated. He was also in the lump in the group of those men that would be uh, men of honor, that you would receive with joy and that you would venerate. But we don't know much about Epaphroditus. Everything we know from him or about him is in the book of Philippians. We know that he was delegated to be a messenger, to be a minister from Philippi. So the Philippian church said, hey, Epaphroditus, we want you to make the trek over to Paul because he's our dear and beloved brother in the faith. We want to give him this gift. You remember this earlier in the text. We want to give him a gift, and you're going to be the man to do it. Now, I don't know if they were saying, hey, we want to give him this gift. So, so maybe he volunteered himself. Maybe he said, hey, I'd like to do it. Or maybe it was because he had such a reputation to begin with that he was their go-to man. You're the man that we want to do this. You're the man that we want to go and send this because we hold you in such high regard and high esteem. I don't know, but those are the possibilities. We know from this brief text that he fell ill, that he got very sick, and they were worried about him. Was he prone to illness like Timothy? I, I don't know about that. I just know he felt ill and near to death. And we know that he was considered a person of uh, honor or worthy of honor. So here's my objective, very simple, to see what makes a man or a woman worthy of honor and respect in, in the areas that matter, in the areas that matter. And I want to go ahead and give a disclaimer. I am not saying in any way that if you achieve something in your job and they want to honor you, that you say, no, 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 forget that, you know, forget that, because that's, that's just self-indulgent and that's arrogance and that's just going to fuel, you know, fuel a, a pompousness or an arrogance in me. I'm not saying that. You know, if, if that's, if, if that's what sin so easily entangles you and ensnares you like it does me, the affirmation of men, you know, then you have to be very careful, you know, because those things can puff you up and those things can bring about arrogance in you. And you have to be careful because you can start believing a lie that somehow, apart from God's grace, you've achieved something. Then all of a sudden you're over here as a Pelagian thinking you're doing something away from God or apart from God and His grace and His blessings in the gospel. So you have to be careful. But I'm not saying it's wrong. Okay, Dennis, because I love you and I love to pick on you and your chicken and your chicken ways. Man, if they want to make you employee of the month for all that hard work that you do, man, say, praise the Lord. Yeah, I'll take it. 
I'll take it. And when people want to hoist you up on their shoulders and say, we love Dennis because he's, he's the best chicken fiend we've got here. If they want to do all that, man, that is absolutely fantastic. Okay, I know those are your dreams and what you think of as you lay on your pillow at night. But brother, if they want to do that, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You know, if you want to say, no, 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 give it to somebody else, that's fine too. But it's not bad for someone to honor you. Okay, so I want to be very clear. You know, we don't need to walk around with whips and beat our backs and say, I'm not worthy of honor. I'm not worthy of honor because that's got enough problems in and of itself. So let's walk through the text. What I've done here is I've kind of highlighted a few things and you can kind of see how my mind kind of processes things as I go. And so I've highlighted different pieces of the text because those are things that stood out to me and things I want to bring attention to. So it's kind of a color-coded thing so that we don't get ahead of ourselves. So what makes us men or women worthy of honor? And I think we get there right here by looking at the life of or this instance with Epaphroditus. So just kind of trick with me as we read through this, and I'll do this as quickly as possible. Paul begins in verse 25, and he says, I have thought it necessary to send you or to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God has mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So the first thing that stands out to me is that Paul considered Epaphroditus a brother. And this is language that Paul uses quite often. Doulos, okay, a, a, well, so that's, 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 that's bondservant. But, but he considers him a, a brother, a brother in Christ. And, and here's what's interesting. Everything that's noteworthy about Epaphroditus, every reason behind his worth of veneration, veneration and exaltation, not hero worship, everything is directly connected to the gospel, everything. To start with, he's a brother in Christ. He's a brother in the gospel. See, the gospel has the unifying power of bringing complete strangers together as eternal family in an instant. It doesn't mean we, we experience one another as, as in, in that moment as though we've enjoyed their company as though they've been family or a best friend status or something like that for all these years. It's not as though I'm going to walk out of the street and I find another Christian and all of a sudden I'm like, well, you know, well, let's, let's hike the AT together because, you know, we just, we're family, you know, and there's maybe not that emotion that comes with it, but there is the reality that we will spend eternity together and just let that sink in. When you meet another brother or sister in Christ, they are your family and it's a family elevated to a more prominent status than any blood or biological family you have here on earth. Because let the reality of that just wave over you. And here's the reality, that every one of us have family members that are not in Christ. And at one point, at some point, you will be eternally separated from that family member. And there is nothing that will change that once, once that has happened. Nothing. You understand that? That's sobering, and that's hard, and it should place a premium 
on our efforts in evangelizing those that we are closest to in family, which for some reason is often one of the hardest people to, to reach. Because then you know that there's going to be maybe some awkwardness, maybe some turmoil. But you become a family. This line in the text represents the unity the gospel brings into our lives. We become family. That's why body life matters so much. Because there is a premium on the body of Christ, the family of God that is elevated infinitely higher than any biological family unit any biological family unit. The gospel does more than give us a way to identify with one another or more than a commonality. It brings us into an eternal family. The family of God is far greater than the family of man or the family of our biological family. The family of God is eternal. Biological family or the family of man is not eternal. You know, we have people die all the time. I started by just explaining when my Aunt Penny died. I will be reunited with her one day. But how many relatives have I had that have passed that were not in Christ that I will never, ever see again? And the reality is something that I don't like to visit very often at all. But it's justice, it's right, and it's good. But it's the reality. But I don't have that fear or that, uh, that concern with those who are in Christ along with me because we've been brought into a family that's eternal. So there's a fondness that Paul has for Epaphroditus as he calls him brother. So the family of God is eternal. The family of God is bound by the blood of Christ and not by the blood of men. We're bound by the blood of Christ and not by the blood of men. So there's a difference. The family of God will one day be made complete, whereas the family of men or a biological family are broken and estranged, not complete. The concept of one body in Christ being brothers and sisters for eternity is as clear and as real as it gets, but grossly neglected in reality, if I can just be honest. And I'm speaking from my personal experience. Let me read that again. The concept of one body in Christ being brothers and sisters for eternity is as clear as it and as real as it gets. We see it in the Bible. We understand. I don't think anybody in this room probably thinks otherwise. I think everybody came here with a healthy understanding that these are my brothers and sisters in Christ. This is normative language as Christian vernacular, right? This is, this is normative. We understand that. We understand that one day we're not given to one another in marriage, but my wife is my sister in Christ. And this is not some weird, twisted, incestual game that God is playing, okay? He gave marriage as an image, as a representation of Christ's love for the church. One day, there will be no more need for that picture. There's no more need for that image or that representation because we all get it. And we are finally united as the bride of Christ to our groom being Christ. But we are all brothers and sisters. And this is normative. We understand that. But I think we neglect it as a reality. I think we neglect it in practice when it comes to the body of Christ. Let me ask you this. When a mom or dad or grandfather or grandmother becomes sick, who's responsible for taking care of them? Now, it may be that you're the child and a mom or dad has passed away. It may be that, that, that you're, you're the child and a grandmother or grandfather has passed away. Whatever the situation is, speaking in terms of immediate family members, I don't think that most people would say, 
Or I would say that most people would say, well, this is, this is my responsibility. You know, I know that one day, if, if I live long enough, and if my parents live long enough, that one day I'm, I will watch them go down that path. And in my mind, there's logistics of, okay, I've got two sisters, and, and what role will we play? But what's not in question as to whether or not we will actually play a role in that. Because it is my responsibility. It is our family's responsibility. It is our natural default mode because we are family to care for the interest of others and to care for the welfare of others in our family. And we apply that to a, to a very real family being the body of Christ. And then we look at each other and we say, okay, well, if this person's sick physically or spiritually, whose responsibility does it fall to to take care of that person? And the answer is the body of Christ. It's the body of Christ. But I think our responsibility is shirked or cast to the side and say, well, they've got family biologically. They've got this person. And I don't necessarily mean, you know, if my mom is sick that you come to my rescue. I don't mean it that way, but I'm talking in the local body of Christ. As a family, we have responsibilities to one another. This is what Philippians 2 has been all about. And Paul continues to turn this phrase, to turn this concept of looking after the welfare of others and looking out for the interest of others. You see it in the relationship between the Paphroditus and the church in Philippi. If there's something Paul's wanting you to get, he's wanting you to get what body life looks like because family matters. So he calls Timothy or he calls Epaphroditus a brother. Let me urge you not to wait for that day to start taking seriously what is meant for today. So Paul considers Epaphroditus a brother, but then he also calls him a fellow worker. He calls him a fellow worker. This is a, this is a reason Epaphroditus was sent. So not much is said, but he had either, not much is said about Epaphroditus other than this. Again, I would assume that either he had established a reputation leading to his being sent out to Paul, or he stepped up on his own because of his character. No matter what happened, and we'll never know, this side of heaven anyway, as if we will know then, I don't know, but what we can be sure of is he developed the reputation after. Like we see that there's definitely a reputation that he has as a result of what he has done, as a result of his coming near to death for the sake of the gospel, as a result of these things that Paul is letting us see, that he's giving us kind of a front row seat towards so there's no mistaking that he ended up with the reputation of being a man worthy of honor because of his partnership with the gospel. He was a fellow worker in the gospel. This begs the question, what reputation have you earned for yourself or have I earned for myself? What reputation have we earned for ourselves in this life? You know, are we going to be considered or counted as men and women who are worthy of honor? You know, and it's not going to be how many home runs you hit. It's not going to be, you know, how many people you locked up. It's not going to be how many kids you taught and you helped advance to the next grade. That's not going to be the standard. The standard's going to have to be how did your life, how was your life conducted in relationship to the gospel? What kind of partner with the gospel? What kind of worker in the gospel were you? What do your friends think of you? How would your friends describe you? What kind of reputation have you built with your friends? Is your reputation very opposite from what your church reputation is versus where you are in the secular world? Are those things very different? If so, that might be a problem. This is just as much for me as it is for you. 
So the assumption is that Epaphroditus was no slouch. He was anything but lazy and nominal as a true follower of Christ. By the way, the kingdom of God is not a place for lazy and nominal Christians. So he considers him him a fellow brother, he considers him a fellow worker, and then he calls him a fellow soldier. And I want to be clear, there's a difference here in being a fellow worker and a fellow soldier. These are not synonymous terms. It's most definitely not redundant. So there's two things that are happening here. He's saying on one hand, he's a fellow worker in the gospel. This means he labors for the kingdom of God in sharing the hope of Christ or the hope in Christ through the gospel message. So this is what Epaphroditus was known to be as a worker, as a worker. He, he, he administered the gospel to people. He lived at the gospel. The gospel was applied in his life and he shared Christ with others. He shared the hope and the message of Christ with others. So he's venerated as a worker of the gospel, but also a soldier. He fought against what was wrong. So when you hear of a soldier, you think warfare. That's, that's a connotation here is there was warfare. He was involved in warfare. He wasn't passive. He wasn't just waiting for all the nice people to have these conversations with. Epaphroditus was someone that would would go out into battle and he would wage war and he would risk confrontation and ultimately risk his life, which is very clear in the text. So he wasn't just a worker, but he was a soldier as well. And this has already been mentioned in Philippians chapter 2. Listen to verse 27, or sorry, Philippians chapter 1. Listen to verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see or am absent, I may hear of you that you, listen to this, are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I don't know if you remember, but several weeks ago, we addressed this passage, and one thing we talked about was this passage was arguing for unity in fighting side by side for the gospel, but also fighting against those who are opposed to the gospel, fighting against false doctrine. It takes an active role. It takes a sword bearer's role in defending the faith and taking the fight to the Antichrist, taking the fight to those who be in opposition to the gospel. So he was both a worker and a soldier, and it almost cost him his life. And the way that I could illustrate this, that, that, that Epaphroditus is both, is as pastors, Austin and I, uh, a part of our responsibility is to speak words of life. So yes, we, 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 we teach to the best of our ability, but we, we meet with people individually a lot. When issues come up and we, we try to lean on the Lord for wisdom and we lean on the word of God and say, okay, this truth applies in your situation. That's a part of our responsibility. You know, and hopefully we're getting better at that and, and are more honorable in that and become worthy of honor for that. So sometimes we challenge and encourage you all in the gospel. That's kind of what we want to do, showing you that your identity is in the gospel and purchased by Christ and that you have been given all that you need to become conformed to the image of Jesus. However, sometimes we have to wage war against false doctrine. That comes from outside of the church and sometimes develops from within. Sometimes we have to say and do hard things, keeping in mind the best interests of Christ, which therefore means we keep your best interest in mind as well. Sometimes that means saying hard things, doing hard things. If it ever comes to church discipline, that's exactly what that is. A part of our responsibility is to lead a charge in that with your involvement. So we're workers, but we're also soldiers. You're workers, but you're also soldiers. 
You have to defend and you have to kill sin. You have to eradicate things, uh, uh, leaven that leavens the whole lump. There are responsibilities we all have. So then he says he's a brother, he's a worker, he's a fellow soldier. Let me just, let me just insert this. Okay. So you're a messenger and a minister. That's clear. I want to unpack that. You know, he goes, they send him. You're the man. You go. He brings this letter. He, he brings this gift, but he also brings the letter back. And that's pretty cool to think of. Just, just as we pass through, just think about this. You, you open your Bible to the book of Philippians, knowing it's a letter, knowing it's manuscript, and knowing there are thousands of copies, knowing that it has an original, and knowing that the reason it's in your Bible today is because God graciously carried Epaphroditus, kept him alive, carried Epaphroditus back to the church at Philippi with this letter so that we could have it today. And so then it says, he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. This word distressed has the same connotation that Jesus expressed in anguish when he was in the garden of Gethsemane. Now, Epaphroditus didn't sweat drops of blood. And I'm not saying he's Christ or that he understands what it is to absorb the wrath of God or to receive the wrath of God. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. But, but the word that was used are the same to show extreme distress. And why is he so distressed? Why is it that he, that he was so very concerned for them and that they were so very concerned for him? It's because there's a genuine love relationship that existed in that church. And I just want to kind of insert this for just a moment because this kind of steps away from kind of my trajectory on what makes us men or women of honor. I want to mention these things. So I've read you the language here. So let me, let me, Break this down. The Philippians ministered to Paul by sending him the care package because they love him. Now, Paul wasn't a part of that church. He helped, he planted that church, but, but he had moved on, right? So now you have Paul in prison and you have them showing great care for him by sending one of their own to him. The Philippians then became distressed over the welfare of Epaphroditus because Epaphroditus is sick, sick near to death. Paul's a witness to this. He says, I can, I can contest or, or I can validate. I can validate that, that he has been that sick. Epaphroditus became distressed because of the church's distress over him. He was so concerned with their concern for him. And Paul saw that, that it was, that it was visceral, that it was visible, that it was so, so strong. And it was all because they, they loved each other. And I want to say this is mine and Austin's, one of our greatest desires for Haven Ridge. You know, with half of us being out, I hope this message just, I hope that this sentiment just reverberates and that everybody gets this. Here's our desire for Haven Ridge, one of our desires, but a strong one, that you would take a personal interest in the welfare of each other because that's what a body does. That's your responsibility as the body of Christ. And I think it is sin. I think it is sin to take a passive role in the lives of each other. I'm not saying be a busybody. I'm not saying be a gossip and try to just find out what's, what's the latest news on somebody's struggle or hardship. I'm not saying that at all. God forbid you do that because then we've got another issue we've got to deal with. But it is an indictment heaped upon your head. If you stand before God and you concern yourself more with everything else going on with this world than your body that you are a part of and committed to. And that's not a pastor's way to manipulate the situation and try to get more people to be involved, to show up. I'm not trying that. This is my heart and this is Austin's heart in saying that we are stewards of you. We've been given stewardship. And a part of that is saying, 
here, here's what's expected from the Bible. This is, this is real stuff. This is legitimate, and you will answer for these things. So we want you to take a personal interest in the welfare of each other. Let me just, I just wrote some things out, and I, and I want to be very direct in this admonishment because this is what it is, because I think we do have a few blind spots. But let me just be clear. When someone is missing for a season, your love for them should lead you further than to just say, hey, I miss you. That's something, and that's great. But if someone's entrenched in something, it might be work, it might be something else, and that's fine, that's cool, but there might be some real heart issues that keep people away. And we're saying they're a part of the body of Christ. They're claiming to be a part of our body. We're claiming to be a part of them and all of these things. We have a responsibility to say, what's going on? I love you. Giving a chance for an explanation, and it might be valid and say, praise God, you know, let me keep you informed on some things, but it might very well be that there's some real heart issues that need attention. And just saying I miss you does not take care of the heart issues. It's no better than a moralistic response. Oh, you should be in church because God says so. No. Let's deal with heart issues and say what's what. I understand. I understand that you can't simply spontaneously manufacture emotion and concern for one another. I'm not saying that this is some magical happy land where you come in and you say, I want to be a part of Haven Ridge, and then all of a sudden it's like you've known each other all your life. I know it doesn't happen that way. That's not, that's not realistic. I get that, and I'm not saying that. I don't think the Bible enforces that. But consider how any relationship flourishes with time and personal investment. So let me ask you this, and I told you I had to give you an admonishment. I don't know this. This is not with somebody in mind that I know is a, is a problem area or a blind spot. This is, this is a very generalized statement. So let me ask you this, not to be answered out loud, but for you to really process how much time is spent in your week or your month or even your year praying for the people that are to your right and to your left. Or do you think that's the elder's job? You think that's my responsibility or Austin's responsibility and not yours? How much time, if you just get honest with yourself, how much time? Maybe you're somebody that says, you know, if I, I, have, I have a list and I go through everybody. If that's it, praise God. I hope I'm on that list. When was the last time you prayed for everybody or, or somebody that wasn't in an amen because someone else prayed for them in the beginning of the church service? How much time are you investing? That's what body life is. That's what it is to consider the interest of others unless you think prayer doesn't work. How many phone calls have been made on your end to check in on someone that was outside or even inside of your friend circle? I do think we have some blind spots, as everyone does. Austin and I have blind spots, and we need the body to weigh in and say, hey, I, I think this could be better. We could be more efficient here. Or there's something going on that, that I can't put my finger on and need your help. Maybe we've missed it. The body needs one another so very much. Why do you think, why do you think so many pastors burn out? 14,000, uh, uh, it's either a year or a month or something. It's staggering, 14,000. That's just burnout. That's not talking about pastoral suicide or any of those things. This is just burnout. And I think the common denominator with that burnout is they feel alone and that they're carrying so much weight by themselves. And you know what is a remedy to that? Active body life in the church. Actively looking out for the interest of others and counting others more significant than yourself. 
This level of commitment to one another was evident in the relationship between Epaphroditus and the Philippian church. And let me finish up with a few thoughts here. Epaphroditus was not just concerned and a lot of his worth, a lot of his uh, worthiness was found in his, his love for his local body, evidenced by his distress and their distress for him. But Epaphroditus was willing to lose his life for the sake of the gospel, which most definitely makes him worthy of honor. And Paul witnessed this firsthand, which is what he's saying. He says, indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Jake, you can go to the next one. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. What was lacking in your service to me, it's not a pejorative attack or not a condescending way of dealing with the church at Philippi. Paul was so overwhelmed with thanks, so overwhelmed with gratitude, that he both recognized the gift from the Philippians. He says, if there was anything lacking, he wasn't saying that there was something lacking. The idea behind this, the connotation here, the verbiage is... Look, you've done so much for me, and you've extended such a loving hand to me. I can't imagine there being anything missing. But if there was, you made up for it in sending this man, because this man, this man was a game changer for me. You sent your best. You didn't send the dregs of your group. You sent one of your best to me, to love me, and for me to watch and be encouraged by. Paul is, he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He's imprisoned because of the gospel. And he's probably thinking, I might die for the gospel. And then to see that he's not alone, to see that someone else almost dies for the gospel has got to be encouraging for Paul because he's not alone on his mission. This is what makes Epaphroditus worthy of honor and why the Philippian church should receive him with joy because it's no small thing. It's no small thing to risk your life for the gospel. Paul considered Epaphroditus to be a man of proven worth and worthy of honor. So the admonishment is twofold that he gives to Philippi. He says, receive him with honor. It was to be a joyous occasion for the Philippian church to have back such a brother, such a proven worker and soldier for the gospel. But he says, receive him with joy. And it says, honor him. There's a right way and a wrong way to honor others. I mentioned it a moment ago with Dennis, right? There's a wrong way. The wrong way is to praise men for their efforts while being silent about the grace and or gospel roots that are behind any and every success story. I don't expect, Dennis, if I may point to you again, I don't expect for uh, an, an, an unbeliever to, uh, to consider the gospel roots behind any success that you might have. I don't expect that. So... I'm not saying it's wrong for you to receive, you know, affirmation. But if you are the one handing out praise, and if you are handing out praise while dismissing the gospel root behind anything good, then it is a wrong form of veneration. The right way is to affirm and celebrate men in such a way that grace and the gospel are highlighted as the root of their or our success. So he says, honor these men. 
Everything mentioned by Paul regarding Epaphroditus has a direct correlation to the gospel, and that's the single most noteworthy reason he and Timothy are worthy of honor. If men want to honor you, that is fine, but honor for everything or anything less than a life of gospel application is a lesser honor. It is right to honor our vets. And that's a touchy thing. I get it. It's right to honor our vets, but it is lesser. It is a lesser honor and a lesser veneration to honor a vet for their service as opposed to honoring someone for risking it all for the gospel. It's apples and oranges. It's apples and oranges. Am I saying we don't honor vets? No. I'm saying compared to honoring people for the gospel or being worthy of honor for the gospel, there's really no comparison. You can't put them on the same plane because living and dying for the gospel is not to be treated the same as living or dying for a country. It's not the same. Timothy and Epaphroditus were both living applications of the gospel, and that is what makes men and women worthy of honor as far as the biblical standard and being honored in that way. Do all things for the sake of Jesus and for the glory of God. And this is the application. It's just kind of a one thing. I know that witnessing, repentance, here's your question. I know that maybe you're thinking, I know that witnessing, repentance, worship, I know what these things look like for the sake of the gospel. I understand how I can witness for the sake of the gospel. I get those things. But what does living for the sake of the gospel mean or even look like in a secular context? What does it look like to stir beakers? Sorry, Charlie, I wrote it in. What does it look like to stir beakers or to make cars or to build tires for the sake of the gospel? What does it look like to be a fellow worker or soldier for the, of the gospel in a classroom where you can't talk about the gospel? What does it look like? These are questions that we would ask. I'm to do these things for the glory of God. I'm to be a representation, a fellow worker and co-worker or a soldier for the gospel, but I can't. I'm limited in these places. So what do I do with that? You build gospel highways that lead to gospel destinations. You're doing things that will lead you to a place that you can make gospel connection. Remember, the highway is never the destination. It's only a path that gets you to where you're going. And some of these highways look like what Paul has already mentioned in Philippians 1 and 2 to keep it all close. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. When you do that, it's a life lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. It is to be a worker of the gospel. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Building highways for God to, towards gospel des destinations. Count others more significant than yourself and look out for the interest of others, just to name a few. If you're doing these, which are easy to do in your workplace that you can't share the gospel, you are, in a sense living, a lot in a sense, but you are living in a manner worthy of the gospel, which is a gospel highway that most definitely leads to gospel destination. Being a soldier or a worker for the gospel is not excluded to personal evangelism. When we live, we move, and have our being in a manner worthy of the gospel, we are putting the effects of the gospel on display for the world to see, and that matters. And that is what makes you and what makes me, men and women, worthy of honor. And so our prayer is that this week, if you haven't been already, that this week that you would be to the Lord a man or a woman that's worthy of honor, a man or a woman that would be received with joy because you made up for what was lacking in anywhere else. And it's only by God's grace and by the gospel that you might be empowered to do that. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, your goodness...
to us, unfortunately, is often minimized or overlooked. Father, I pray that you would grant us eyes to see the depths of your love, the depths of your mercy and grace that you have so so richly lavished on us. Lord, that you gave those things out of your riches to us. Lord, that you did not withhold. You were not stingy with grace, love, or mercy, but you lavished those things on us, proven in Christ. Lord, I pray that those things lavished on us, covering us, giving us identity, Lord, that those would compel us in a direction that's worthy of honor, that we may arrive at our destination. Lord, as those who have lived a life in a manner worthy of the gospel in our conversations, Lord, in the way we treat our spouses, in the way that we deal with our children, in the way that we work, our work ethic, Lord, when no one's looking, when everyone's looking. In all cases, Lord, may we be worthy of honor And by you, may we be received with joy. And may we be a pleasing aroma to you this week in Christ's name. Amen.